Coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fourth Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. All right, so this is technically the Friday show. And some of you may not even hear it on Friday. Some of you may hear it one of the several times that it replays on the America One Radio app or at AmericaOneRadio.com over the course of the weekend. It'll re-air at 3 a.m. on Saturday. And then when does it air again on Saturday mornings, right? I want to say, yeah, 11 a.m. Saturday. And then again at 3 a.m. on Monday. And then again at 8 a.m. Uh, Monday morning. And you may be listening in one of those slots. And... Normally, I'd say that's a great thing, except what I'm going to lead with today, listen, liberals, progressives, Democrats, we we would rather not have to talk about this. And yet, I guess technically, I get to talk about this several times on America One Airways. Um, obviously, if you listen via podcast, this is the one, one and done, right? Take your lumps and move on. The Fonnie Willis, Nathan Wade story. Fulton County District Attorney and the special prosecutor involved in the Trump case here in Fulton County. This story is not going away, has not gone away. And part of that is because the district attorney hasn't said word one about this since these damning allegations were dropped by Michael Roman's attorney. I have talked to a lot of folks off the record text messages, conversations, and by and large, there are things that concern me about this case uh, and and them as well. Again, that, that the district attorney has not said a word, that Michael Roman's attorney is the real deal. In other words, we're not dealing with the kind of attorney that Trump churns through, churns and burns, just uses, loses, often doesn't pay. I want to read for you an opinion piece that dropped this morning in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Patricia Murphy writing, and I'm not at all in disagreement with the brunt of what she's trying to say here. The headline, Fonnie Willis, what are you thinking? When Judge Robert McBurney admonished Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis in 2022 for hosting a fundraiser for a political opponent of Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones, McBurney declared it a what-were-you-thinking moment. The optics are horrific, the judge said before slicing the Jones piece off the case of Willis grand jury investigation because of the potential conflict of interest. Now, two years later, the optics for Willis are even worse, Patricia Murphy writes. After a court filing accused her of having a romantic relationship with Nathan Wade, the special prosecutor she hired in the Fulton County case against former President Donald Trump. Come off the script here a little bit and remind you that when that news dropped, my initial reaction was, wow, this is a lot of media attention for something that was filed with no proof. And that is still the case. There is still no proof. There's just a lot of smoke and silence from the Willis camp. The smoke being the fact that Nathan Wade's estranged wife, they are in the process of divorcing uh, after all, has sought Fonnie Willis' testimony in their divorce proceedings. Maybe there's nothing to that. However, back to Patricia Murphy's piece. The filing included loads of details and unsavory bits, along with the accusation of a relationship which came with no concrete proof. The filing also said Wade's firm has been paid more than $600,000 by the county so far, 
and that he and Willis have taken lavish trips together, possibly funded by those taxpayer dollars. Again, coming off script here. I, I, I want to see proof of this. If, if it exists, let's, let's see the proof. Back to the opinion piece. The Wall Street Journal has reported that Wade has never tried a felony criminal case in Georgia, and yet he's been selected by the district attorney he was possibly involved with for what could be the trial of the century. And Politico reported that Wade met at length with the January 6th committee with details that were not previously known. This could be an extreme case of he said, she said, except Willis has said nothing. Not a press conference, not a back-channel denial, not a staff email like the one she sent to her office after Trump grossly accused her of being romantically involved with a defendant in a gang trial. That rumor was, quote, derogatory and false, she said then. This week, Willis' office said only that she would respond in court filings. But the silence outside of that has left Republicans pushing to investigate her and Democrats reeling, worried that the case against Trump, which they believe is rock solid, will be slowed or undermined. Willis is also up for re-election in 2024, with filing opening for potential challengers in March. Patricia Murphy continues. Known in the Capitol may have a better view of Democratic and Republican feelings on the issue than State Representative Michelle Au, a Democrat from a battleground district in Johns Creek. Al's predecessor in the state Senate was David Schaefer, the former Georgia GOP chair indicted in the Trump case as the head of Trump's alternate elector scheme in Georgia. Al's successor is state Senator Sean Still, who has also been indicted in the Trump case for his role as a Trump elector in 2020. And Al's most famous constituent in the 50-50 district is Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, who infamously took the call from Trump to, quote, find 11,780 votes that launched Willis Fulton County probe. Al stressed that while no evidence has been produced to prove the allegations against Willis, we stress that too, public opinion is racing ahead anyway without input from the DA. Al told Patricia Murphy, I fear it's going to feed into the factors that we know already exist in terms of people casting aspersions and casting doubt on the work of the DA as well as on the rightness of this investigation at all whether it's warranted or not. Au is also concerned Republicans will double down on investigations of district attorneys all over the state, which they now have the ability to do with this new commission they concocted, you'll recall. Um, back to the opinion piece. Another Democratic official who did not want to speak on the record is more worried than that. This could totally derail the Trump case if it's true, said that official. Many Republicans aren't waiting to see if it's true. Trump's closest allies in the state, including Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene and State Senator Colton Moore, launched into I told you so declarations days ago. Greene has asked Attorney General Chris Carr to launch a criminal investigation into Willis. Moore, who was ousted from the GOP Senate caucus this summer for attacking Republican colleagues over Willis, has filed legislation to pre-pardon. That's not a real thing, Patricia Murphy notes the 19 defendants from Willis' racketeering case against them. Green and Moore are not much for Willis to lose sleep over, but more harrowing for the DA are cautious statements of concern from the Republicans with real power, including House Speaker John Burns. Burns went out on a limb over the summer when he defended Fonnie Willis from attacks from Colton Moore and others, saying, Targeting one specific DA in this manner certainly flaunts the idea of separation of powers, if not outright violates it. He wrote that in a letter to members at the time. 
but asked this week if Willis should be investigated by the new GOP-appointed panel overseeing local district attorneys. Burns said, that's not for me to approve, but if they decide to make that decision, that's fine with me. Speaking of that oversight commission, the Republican who authorized the bill creating it, State Representative Houston Gaines, said throughout the last year that the effort to rein in, quote, rogue DAs around the state, many of whom are women of color, was never meant to target Willis. But after the allegations surfaced against Willis this week, Gaines said they are a reason for the commission to start its work as soon as possible. Fonnie Willis should be investigated immediately, and if those allegations are true, she should resign or be removed from office, he said. Patricia Murphy continues, some Democrats in the Capitol said Thursday that the controversy swirling around Willis now should not distract from what Trump did in 2020 to overturn the election that Joe Biden won in Georgia. That's where the focus should remain, State Representative Sam Park said. But Al said later that should and will are two different things in politics and public opinion. Obviously, in an ideal world, one would hope that the legal arguments would stand just as strong, she said. However, we know that doesn't happen in real life. The silence from Willis this week leaves us with nothing but unanswered questions, Patricia Murphy writes, capping her piece with this. Are the allegations true? Is it as reckless as it seems? What about the potentially serious conflicts the filing raises? And most especially, Fonnie Willis. What are you thinking? Yeah, how's about waking up to reading that? <laughs> My gosh. I mean, there there are some folks who, who don't take these allegations seriously. Um, but I think the longer that they go unanswered, the more serious you have to feel about them. And, and maybe that's just the way we're wired, Democrats in particular, Democrats in the South specifically. A lot like uh, being a Falcons fan when you're ahead by, I don't know, 25 in the Super Bowl. You're just wondering, all right, when's the inevitable other shoe going to drop, right? I mean, there are those who who think, oh, they're just overreacting. They're just grasping. Uh, even if it's true, memories are going to fade quickly. Uh, they'll have forgotten this by next week. We'll be moving on. It, it's one thing when there's something to be throwing at Donald Trump because there's so much that he is allegedly guilty of or has done or even said i didn't say that did i say that i didn't say that and you've got the video of it um but it's quite another when it's the arrows and barbs coming towards the left because right-wing media doesn't forget this stuff and even listen to me i mean i'm i'm left of center definitely left of center and i take an approach to this like uh this is serious stuff allegedly if any of this is true, it's serious stuff, and it gives misgivings. And when you're heading to a jury trial, listen, again, I'm just seven seasons into suits. That is my legal acumen. It only takes one member of the jury <laughs> to mess up a jury trial for the prosecution. Okay, so now here's the fun thing about the show you're listening to right now. I am actually just diving into this show and decided I wanted to knock out the first segment by sharing with you Patricia Murphy's opinion piece. As I record this, it's about 10.30 the morning, Friday morning. There is a 1 p.m. hearing Friday, or was. Actually, there was a 1 p.m. hearing Friday because you're listening to this in the future from that point in time. Anyway, uh, it's being live streamed 
on Judge McAfee's YouTube page. We'll try and get some audio of that and give you updates on if more information drops. I know, right? I get to give you the play-by-play as it happened with pertinent commentary from yours truly and the legal analyst that I follow on social media who I totally believe, hook, line, and sinker. Also, if there's time in the show today, I want to dive back into the UGA football, the the, the car accident, the deaths, uh, new uh, information coming out about that, that I want to dive into, a fantastic piece uh, written in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that alleges that alcohol and cash passed back and forth and used frequently in recruiting efforts, that according to some court filings and reported on by Dylan Jackson at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, who I'm sure is being demonized by the UGA fan base for no reason other than doing his job. Anyway, the story is a pretty thorough encapsulation of the story, and it does not shine a positive light on the University of Georgia Athletic Department or football program. We've got that when the Ron Show returns. On the American One Radio app, AmericanOneRadio.com, wherever you podcast. Welcome back to the Ron Show. What a start, right? <laughs> uh, and you know what? I'm going to give you the audio of today's hearing uh, Judge McAfee kind enough to give us the Zoom via YouTube uh, for all to watch wherever we were, uh, hopefully staying dry and inside because it is nasty today throughout Metro Atlanta. By the way, if you're listening over the weekend or Monday morning, this show is recorded on Friday. So in all honesty, the more contentious part of today's hearing with regards to Trump's uh, criminal defense attorney, Steve Sadow, was this questioning of special prosecutor Nathan Wade, he of the allegations of... uh, relationship with District Attorney Fonnie Willis, uh, anyway, had access to evidence that the defense has not seen from his meetings with the January 6th committee last spring. Oh, that's right. The January 6th committee that Magellan thought was no longer going to be a problem once Republicans retook the House. Well, see about that. Betsy Woodruff Swan, Kyle Cheney from Politico, writing, Georgia prosecutors probing Donald Trump's effort to subvert the 2020 election got an early boost in the spring of 2022. It came from another set of investigators who were way ahead of them. The House January 6th Select Committee. Ooh, you know Marjorie got to be going hog wild mad about this. Uh, committee staff quietly met with lawyers and agents working for Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis in mid-April 2022, just as she prepared to convene a special grand jury investigation. In the previously unreported meeting, the January 6th committee aides let the district attorney's team review, but not keep, a limited set of evidence they had gathered. Over the past few months, committee staff also had a series of phone calls with Willis' team. They answered the prosecutor's questions and shared insight on matters like Trump's false electors gambit and his efforts to pressure Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. Both of those ploys ultimately featured prominently in the criminal charges that Willis brought against Trump and his allies last summer. The contacts between the committee and Willis' team also helped prosecutors prepare for interviews with key witnesses. Really what's so wild about this is that the January 6th committee, which again, this was the spring of 2022 before the midterms, they weren't even sure they were going to exist after November elections and new Congress being sworn in in January 2023, worked with Fonnie Willis, but not with the Department of Justice request for materials. According to the same article in Politico, they did that. One reason the committee was more inclined to cooperate with the Fulton County team than with the federal prosecutors was that federal prosecutors might have been required to disclose the evidence in ongoing criminal cases related to the January 6th attack on the Capitol. When congressional Republicans recently pressed Fonnie Willis to disclose her team's contacts with the January 6th committee, she refused, 
calling their inquiry an affront to, quote, well-established principles of federalism and separation of powers. Ooh, don't you hate that states' rights stuff when it's used against you, Republicans? She said, you cannot and will not be provided access to any non-public information about this in a writing to the House Judiciary Committee last month. Okay, no ask for today, and Steve Sadow deciding not to yet wade into the whole Fonnie Willis-Nathan Wade potentially having an affair thing. Here's how this sort of played out. So anything else, Mr. Sadow, then? Yes, Your Honor. I was told via email that all the lawyers were told via email that you would briefly discuss notion of adopting co-defendants' motions. Specifically, I had asked in reference to the motion to dismiss and disqualify filed by Defendant Roman's counsel on January 8th of 2024. Um, I had sent an email along asking for leave to adopt at a later time. Does the court want to take that up now, or do you want to take that up at the end? No, I think we can address that now. Uh, so I'm I'm remembering that the uh, just kind of addressing the adopted motions because they've gone every which way here to try and impose some sense of um, order on this is that the conclusion had been you can adopt a motion, but that doesn't necessarily entitle you to argument on it. But then I recognize when you have a, a drop dead motions deadline, you don't necessarily have time to adopt your co-defendants because they just got filed simultaneously. So in essence, are you asking just to adopt it on its face or are you looking to supplement it and go much further than where it already is? Well, or actually, essentially to, to, to join counsel at the table. Well, actually, neither one at this point. Uh, this is the first motion in which there have been allegations of fact made, which deal directly with our opposition counsel. Uh, suffice it to say that they are salacious and scandalous in nature. And I don't have a factual background that I can state to the court supports that at this point. I'm leery of moving to adopt motions that make such allegations without having a better understanding or substantiation of the allegations. What I'm trying to do here, it's one thing to adopt a motion that brings up a matter of law. This is different. I was hoping the court would give me the opportunity uh, when the DA's office responds to that motion to see what the factual disputes are, what the allegations, whether they are disputed otherwise or whether they are supported, to give me the opportunity within a few days of that response by the DA's office to make the determination whether I wish to adopt. That's specifically what I was hoping to accomplish with regard to that specific motion. Otherwise, I should be able to adopt motions right away like I did. There were certain things that were filed on January the 8th by uh, co-defendant counsel, and I immediately adopted those on January the 9th. But this is different. That's why I put it to the court as I have. All right. So obviously my plan with this was uh, to allow the state an opportunity to respond before setting a hearing date. And as for the date of a hearing, we have to work around the other trial calendars in this docket. So I think early February would be the, um, the soonest that would happen. And so I think that would give you some time, Mr. Sadow, to consider any adoption if you need to. And uh, again, I'm not a, a, opposed to just a merely adopting it to preserve the issues if that's something you do want to join. So uh, to that end, I would say you do have some some leeway there, but at the at the moment when we've got a response from both sides and we're ready to set it for a hearing, what I'm trying to avoid is dragging it out because other parties want to piggyback and do their own 
separate investigation, if you will. Uh, there's a motions deadline, and we're trying to stick to it. Am I, am I making sense? I understand sense? that, Your Honor. All right. Yes, uh, uh, totally. All I'd ask for then is if you'll give me two days to adopt after the response. I need no additional time after that. All right. A few minutes later. Uh, does the state want to add anything? At this time, Your Honor. Oh, for crying out loud. All right. Anything else, Mr. Saydown? No, I take it the court will give me at least a couple of days after the response. I'll get it in immediately. All right. Yeah. Like I mentioned, I don't know when the state is planning to file a response, but at some point we will have to set up for a hearing. And right now, again, like I said, uh, just based on the schedule, we're targeting early to mid-February. So I would imagine if there's going to be a response, it would, it would be before that time. Ugh. What a mid-season finale cliffhanger on this season of Suits Atlanta. <laughs> no, but seriously, we, we didn't really learn a whole lot today, except that Steven Sadow is just kind of like either completely caught off guard or at least acting like he is for the role by these allegations. All right. Back after this, The Ron Show continues on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Follow The Ron Show on Facebook at The Ron Show Radio. Ron Show on America One Radio. So, Jimmy Kimmel and late night television making its slow return back from the writer's strike and kind of giving us some original content again. Jimmy, by the way, has been sparring with, check notes, Aaron Rodgers of the New York Jets lately. They've been going back and forth. Aaron, of course, saying deranged things and uh, salacious allegations. I believe the Epstein flight logs were invoked. And Jimmy's like, uh, you really want to go there? We can take this to court. Aaron Rodgers retreated. Uh, anyway, Jimmy Kimmel sort of encapsulated what I've been wanting to do for the last couple of days, uh, and, and that's cover the Hunter Biden surprise appearance at the House Oversight Committee hearing. Let me give you a little piece of his monologue so you can kind of get an idea in case you missed it. Where have you been? Uh, in case you missed it, this is kind of how it all played out. A lot of nonsense uh, from the top these days from Trump and company, but there was, I don't know if you saw this, but I, I really like to show it to you. There was a scene in the House of Representatives this morning that was every bit as contentious and dramatic and childish as a, like a real Housewives live season finale. And I'm not overselling this. If you thought C-SPAN was boring, and it usually is. Oh, C-SPAN came popping out of its shell when Hunter <laughs> Biden stopped in to make a surprise visit to the House Oversight Committee. Now, the backstory is... Uh, the MAGA happy gang of Republicans, they made it their mission to paint Hunter Biden. You familiar with the crackhead Hunter Biden? Okay. <laughs> As some type of criminal mastermind who's charged with bringing money into the family. So they served him with a subpoena. They ordered him to testify as part of this manufactured impeachment inquiry they're doing. And Hunter said, all right, I'll testify, but only if I can do it in public. He wanted to do it on TV, presumably so we could see what a joke this is. And they said, no, no. We have to do this in secret so we can spin it however we like afterwards. Mm -hmm. And Hunter said, no deal. Either we do it in public or I'm not doing it at all. So this morning, the Oversight Committee meets with cameras rolling for a hearing on whether to hold Hunter in contempt for not showing up. And guess who shows up? Hunter Biden. Boom. <laughs> it was incredible. It was like when the polar bear showed up on Lost. It was <laughs> like C-SPAN meets the Maury Povich show. They didn't know what to do. They were planning to have to do a big grandstanding routine where they give the little speeches they hope will get on Fox News, but instead they ended up looking like they were the ones on crack. My first question is who bribed Hunter Biden to be here today? That's my first question. Um, second question, you are the epitome of white privilege, coming into the oversight committee, spitting in our face, ignoring a congressional subpoena to be deposed, 
What are you afraid of? You have no balls to come up here and- M Mr. Chairman, point of inquiry. Mr. Chairman, if the general lady wants to hear from Hunter Biden, we can hear from him right now, Mr. Chairman. Let's take a vote and hear from Hunter Biden. What are you afraid of? Hold on, hold on, hold on. Order, order, order. Are women allowed to speak in here or no? Are women allowed to speak in here or no? Because you keep interrupting me. That was Nancy Mace of South Carolina calling Hunter Biden out for white privilege. Have you met your own party? Have you met your own face, by the way? Nancy Mace completely lost it. She demanded that he be arrested and locked up. Nothing satisfies these people. They're constantly asking, where's Hunter? And he shows up and they're mad. So now, with the Republicans in a full-blown tizzy, a Florida Democrat named Jared Moskowitz decided he Beautiful. would have some fun. The witness accepted the chairman's invitation. Yep. It just so happens the witness is here. Mm -hmm. If the committee wants to hear from the witness and the chairman gave the witness that option, then the only folks that are afraid to hear from the witness with the American people watching uh -huh. are my friends on the other side of the aisle. I don't know if there's a proper motion, Mr. Chairman, but I'll make a motion. Let's vote. Let's take a vote. Who wants to hear from Hunter right now, today? Anyone? Come on. Who wants to hear from Hunter? I'm raising my hand. Yeah. No one. <laughs> I, I would. All of a sudden, none of them have any questions for Hunter. Isn't that something? And then Moskowitz pulled a beauty. He offered to, to uh, vote. He said he would personally vote to hold Hunter Biden in contempt if they also held the six Republican congressmen who also ignored a subpoena in contempt, too. Mark Meadows, Jim Jordan, Mo Brooks, Scott Perry, Andy Biggs, and Kevin McCarthy all refused to testify, privately or publicly, when they were subpoenaed uh, over what happened on January 6th, which would be embarrassing to them if they were in any way capable of shame. There's no shame anymore. Remember that scene in Game of Thrones? They marched Cersei through the streets, shame. saying shame. shame. They used it all shame. up there. That was it. The end of it. And of course, um, no messy scene in Congress would be complete without a Karen moment from the hypocrite Marjorie Taylor Greene. Clan mom started shouting at the president's son. So he's like, you know what? I'm getting up and I'm leaving, which she took as a very sexist offense. I think it's clear and obvious for everyone watching this hearing today that Hunter Biden is terrified of strong conservative Republican women because he can't even face my words as I was about to speak to him. What a coward. She's so woke, you know, what a snowflake. <laughs> The woman who showed the world naked pictures of Hunter Biden in Congress can't understand why he didn't want to stick around to hear her pontificate. I think it's um, uh, interesting to hear the gentle lady from Georgia uh, speak about Hunter Biden leaving. And she is the person that showed nude photos of Hunter Biden in this very committee room, showing, showing pics in this committee room uh, of, of Hunter Biden. No, that didn't sound like a gentle lady to me, I'll tell you. Mm, mm. <laughs> Kids today have no idea how lucky they are. When I was in high school, we never had pics on C-SPAN. We had to go to the streets. And that's when the ranking Democrat on the Oversight Committee, Jamie Raskin, came in to kick some asking. Yes, Mr. Chairman, I, I ask unanimous, con unanimous consent to enter information for the record. What's the information? Oh, very kind. Uh, I... State the information. Thank you. I reserve the right to object. The, the minority has not provided a copy of the material for the record. In the past, she's displayed pornography. Is pornography allowed to be, or pornographic photos allowed to be displayed in this committee room, Mr. Chairman? It's not pornography. 
Okay, well, you're the expert. I'll root. What is known as a bird. Yes. Now, I would love to give you an idea how Fox News covered this, except this is all that Sean Hannity bothered to show that night. Hunter didn't stick around for very long, fleeing the room after getting publicly humiliated by Congresswoman Nancy uh, Mace of South Carolina. Take a look at this. You are the epitome of white privilege, coming into the Oversight Committee, spitting in our face, ignoring a congressional subpoena to be deposed. What are you afraid of? You have no balls to come up here. I think that uh, that Hunter Biden should be arrested right here, right now, and go straight to jail. Gentlemen, time's expired. Chair, recognize Ms. Green from Georgia for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, excuse going? me, Hunter. Apparently, you're afraid of my words. That is literally all that Sean Hannity bothered to show. Not the Jimmy Raskin part, not the Jared Moskowitz part, just that little 30-second nub of House Oversight hearing video. Oh, and hey, before you think it's just liberal old me complaining about the way Fox News treats the news, you know who else thinks that Fox News is not being fair? Ronnie DeSantis. He's got basically a Praetorian guard of, of, of the conservative media, uh, Fox News, um, you know, the, the websites, all the, this stuff. They just don't they don't hold them accountable because they're worried about losing viewers and they don't want to have the ratings go down. Uh, and, and that's just that's just the reality. That's just the truth. And I'm not complaining about it. Um, I'd rather that not be the case, but that's just, I think, an objective reality. So when- what's crazy about that complaint that he made earlier today is he was on Hannity. What night was he on Hannity? And yeah, he was on Hannity last night. No complaints about the way Fox News is covering Donald Trump or the GOP primary. That's right. Mr. Bold and Brave and Brash Leadership had the opportunity to lodge a complaint face to face on Hannity and He made like Trump with Putin watching him. He withered. Oh, but anyway, uh, let me get back to some more audio that Fox News and Sean Hannity did not want to uh, let you get sound bites from in that House Oversight Committee hearing. Eric Swalwell making a fantastic point with Jim Jordan in the room. Mr. Chairman, is this a joke? No, seriously, is this hearing a joke? This is a committee that now cares about subpoena compliance, and we're going to hold somebody in contempt for subpoena compliance. That's really interesting because, to me, it seems like you believe we all had our memories wiped 608 days ago (laughs) when you failed to honor your own subpoena. You see, on May 31, 2022, as the January 6th committee was investigating the greatest crime ever committed in America with the most arrests, the most convictions, a crime against our Congress, mm-hmm. our Constitution, our democracy, mm-hmm. all they wanted was for you and a few of your colleagues to cooperate, to provide any information you had. And what you all did for 608 days and counting, you didn't show up. Yep. And you want us to take this proceeding seriously, where you have an issue with somebody else's compliance with a subpoena, somebody who actually is willing to come forward publicly, something you were not willing to do, something you and Mr. McCarthy and others who were asked to testify were not willing to do. So seriously, is this a joke? If it's a joke, great. 
This whole Congress has been a joke, so it would be in line and on brand with what has been taking place. But I have to ask, like, how dumb do you think the American people are that you would seek to hold someone in contempt when you are 608 days, 15 hours, 21 minutes, and 47 seconds That's out right. of compliance of your own subpoena? I don't know, Mr. Chairman, if, if it is your practice to look the other way when crimes are committed, but it's not my practice, and it's not my colleague's practice. So when he asked how dumb do you think the American people are, Let's be honest, GOP politicians and their pundits and their cable TV allies, they think that their base either isn't smart enough to see this sort of crap, the hypocrisy. What did they call, what did, he, what did Jimmy Kimmel call uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene? Hypocritter. <laughs> anyway, they either think that their audience, their base, isn't smart enough to notice the hypocrisy or that they know their base doesn't even care that they're hypocrites. And honestly, I'm not even sure which case would be scarier, that they think and realize that their voting base, their audience, is that gullible, or that they know that their base either is gullible and or doesn't care that they are hypocrites. How does that make us a greater country, y'all? Uh, Representative Jasmine Crockett from Texas. I have such a crush on her. Not going to lie. Let me tell you why nobody wants to talk to y'all behind closed doors, because y'all lie. That's just the bottom line. You have done it thus far in this investigation. You have done it this far as it relates to this committee. In every single hearing, y'all spin, spin, spin. I don't know how y'all are still standing right now, because you should be quite dizzy from all the spinning that you're constantly doing when it comes to spinning the truth. You talk about free and fair elections, but you back a guy who we know tried to steal the election. And this isn't about what Democrats have to say. Let me remind you, for those of you that don't know how the justice system works, it's not a matter of the president went in and indicted Trump, but we are talking about grand juries. Grand juries are comprised of American citizens and the people that have entered pleas of guilty that will be flipping on your leader in a minute, Mm -hmm. they are Republicans. Republicans. I do want to point that out. And half of them were Republicans that were handpicked by Donald Trump himself. So, to be clear, whatever happens to your little leader, it's going to be because of the actions that he took. So you can talk all you want to about how January 6th was nonsense, but all of y'all were running at that time. Y'all were grabbing y'all's gas masks, yep. and y'all were running to your offices because you didn't know if they were coming to kill you. You should have cared that somebody was there to protect you, but instead you want to play games because you found out that it was your leader that decided that he wanted to propagate an insurrection on our country. So don't tell me that you care about the Constitution, because you don't. All you care about is Trump getting reelected, and I'll yield the last of my time to my leader. And that is exactly why, in my opinion, that we, we let too much time pass between January 6, 2021, and calling to account everyone involved. I mean, I, I realize, like, it, it, politics, I get it, Nancy Pelosi, things take time, you got to form this committee. I'm sorry, there was not enough striking while the iron was hot, because there were Republicans who were ready to wash their hands of Donald Trump then and there, and then Kevin McCarthy had a little bit of time to be summoned down to Mar-a-Lago and to be wrangled right back in to the click, and here we are. And really, nobody's better off for this. Nobody. 
the GOP faces the prospect of having a nominee who could be found guilty of several crimes before even becoming the nominee at their convention or between becoming the nominee at their convention and the general election. The country's not better off for that. And by the way, we're going to be watching next week with the Iowa caucuses. And by the way, there's all kinds of weather issues up there because of freezing temperatures and snow and whatnot. That could keep some of the older voters in. And I kind of think that damages Trump a little bit. He may not win by the numbers he thinks he's going to because of that. But we're going to start seeing uh, which of who's left. And basically, it's Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. Which of the two who's left is damaged the most from not winning or coming in second and hangs in there. I kind of think the momentum's with Nikki, even despite her civil war slavery issues. I mean, how weak does that make Ron DeSantis? Uh, that y- you either got to start seeing one of them dropping out or them coalescing to try uh, to form like formulate some unity ticket to take Trump out. It's all going to be interesting to watch and it'll all start unfolding. My gosh, can you believe we're just a few days away from folks actually voting? I mean, the caucuses aren't really voting, but nonetheless, we're just a few days away from things starting to take shape in 2024. Back after this. All right, final segment of the Ron Show for today and the weekend. And I just made an executive decision. Had a fantastic interview with Jillian Rabin and Melita Easters earlier this week uh, about the independent short film L8. If you haven't seen that yet, uh, we have the link to that in the show notes at ronshowatl.com. I believe that was Wednesday. I think it was Wednesday. So that's probably what I'm going to re-air over the weekend. I say all that because I started the show concerned that we're just going to hammer the Fonnie Willis, Nathan Wade, salacious allegations thing all weekend. And I just realized I don't have to do that. Uh, here's what I do have to do in this. uh, Listen, I'm a Georgia Bulldog fan, red and black to the, to the bone. And this bothers me. Uh, the accident that took the lives of a recruiting staffer and a football player. I just, of course, obviously tragic losses and losses. And, uh, even what seems to be a culture of permissiveness that may have led to their untimely demise Uh, this just seems to continue to haunt the program and I can't help but wonder uh, how much this is going to affect the program or the coaching staff or the athletic department altogether. Obviously lives lost. It's just, it's unbearable for the grieving families, but um, there have been some, uh, some more actions taken in courtrooms that bring this back to the forefront uh, Dylan Jackson at the Atlanta Journal Constitution, fantastic job summing all of this up together. The headline: Alcohol and cash used in UGA football recruiting, according to court filings. He writes: Attorneys representing a former University of Georgia football recruiting analyst injured in a crash involving alcohol that killed two members of the program say coaches and staffers regularly drove UGA Athletic Association rental vehicles. After drinking and the court filings and this article, you get screen grabs of text messages that are pretty alarming. I'll share that in the show notes at ronshowatl.com, by the way. The attorneys also allege that UGA's coaches spent cash during unofficial recruiting visits. Such spending by coaches may have violated NCAA rules, according to court papers filed on Thursday. The allegations are part of an amended complaint in a lawsuit filed against the Athletic Association and others by former Georgia recruiting staffer Victoria Tory Bowles. Her attorneys allege alcohol and coaches' cash helped lubricate Georgia's powerhouse recruiting machine. 
this quote, my client's iPhone survived the crash fully intact and contains thousands of pages of recruiting texts describing the inner workings of UGA's recruiting activities. That is Tory Bull's attorney, Rob Buck. He uh, made that in a release statement. He continues, the new texts include in the amended complaint established that the association was fully aware recruiting staffers were regularly allowed to drive recruits and their families around Athens after drinking alcohol at association-sponsored events. Dylan Jackson writes, The new allegations represent another salvo in the bitter lawsuit between Bowles and her former employer, the UGA Athletic Association, and come days before the one-year anniversary of the January 15th crash that killed recruiting analyst Chandler LaCroix, remember she was driving one of the vehicles, who was driving an offensive lineman, Devin Willock, a passenger. Tory Bowles, a passenger in the vehicle, was severely injured. The Athletic Association on Thursday pushed back about the new assertions by Bowles' legal team. This statement, We are reviewing the amended complaint, but we dispute its claims and will vigorously defend the Athletic Association's interest in court. That according to Stephen Drummond, an executive associate athletic director with the UGAAA. Other staffers mentioned by name in the lawsuit could not be immediately reached for comment. The information included in the updated filing, according to the report by Dylan Jackson, uh, sheds additional light on other aspects of UGA's football operations, such as the role of UGA Athletics Association staffer Bryant Gant, who reported directly to head coach Kirby Smart on the program's organizational chart and was widely known for having influence with law enforcement. He writes, the filing continues 11 text messages to bolster the various claims. In one such exchange in June 2021, former UGA football staffer Matt Godwin told other staff he was directed by Cochran, presumably Georgia special teams coordinator Scott Cochran, to entertain an offensive lineman from another school. Here's one of the text messages. Cochran told me I got to get Mitz Zalotti up tonight, so gonna head downtown for a celebratory beer if anyone would like to join according to the text quoted in the complaint. Bull's attorneys add she is unaware of any enforced prohibition on driving athletic association rental, rental vehicles after drinking alcohol. Okay, but can I just point out, you, you don't really, like the law says you can't do that. So why should the athletic association have to regurgitate known law? Okay, back to the article. The filing does not provide any evidence that coaches and staffers were intoxicated when they drove recruits and their families out. The allegations address the heart of Bowles' lawsuit filed in Gwinnett County State Court, which hinges in large part on the university's policies governing the use of the luxury SUVs rented by the association and driven by football recruiting staff during recruiting visits. The football program regularly rented a fleet of the luxury vehicles to shuttle recruits and their families around Athens during recruiting weekends. See, Tory's attorneys allege, according to Dylan Jackson's writing here, that the program was negligent in allowing LaCroix to drive a rental vehicle. They're seeking nearly $200,000 to recoup Bull's medical bills and lost wages in addition to other unspecified damages. This article, uh, again, Georgia fan doesn't wash over a Georgia fan very well. But again, it's uh, just uh, the, the, the appearance of a filing that, as the association said, they're already disputing it, but going to look into them further while they already dispute it. 
Now, there's some gray area and a little bit of capitulation on the charges that the recruiting employees were not allowed to take the SUVs for personal use, but there were occasions where it was just more convenient to just continue home with the vehicles and then bring them back the next day. So the University Athletic Association has backed off on that a little bit, but there was also this one little moment here. And this one kind of made the hair on my arm stand on end here. Bowles' attorneys say the Athletic Association allowed coaches and staff to drink and drive. The complaint reads... Text messages showed that on occasion, supervisors and coaches, in effect, encouraged recruiting staff to drink alcohol with football prospects, families, well aware that staffers would leave the events after consuming alcohol. Marshall Malcho texting once, hey guys, if you are driving, you can have fun at Coach Smarts, but if you are driving a recruit, make sure you don't get drunk. It will be a bad look if we have people who are supposed to be driving recruits getting lit. Yes, I suppose that's open to interpretation, but the interpretation seems somewhat clear. Anyway, I'll share that in today's show notes at ronshowetl.com. It's going to do it for the Ron Show for the day and for the week. Have yourselves a great weekend. Back here, MLK Edition, Monday, 5 to 6 p.m. weekdays here on the American One Radio app, americanradio.com, or wherever you podcast. Take care.